It's great to see you all this morning. We are in week 11 now of our study through the book of Job. It's been, it's been a long journey, quite a journey, and we've got about four weeks left, so we are getting closer to some kind of resolution in, in this tale, uh, but it's taking a while. We've watched Job undergo incredible trials in his life as he's suffered unspeakable loss and pain and grief. And then we've also watched him sort of be on trial as this is going on, as his friends examine his life and probe, uh, looking for something that he must have done wrong in order to deserve this. Like, Job, what did you do that you're being punished for? So it's as if he's, all, he's on trial on top of the trials that he's already going through. And we'll be in chapter 31 today, which is, as we open up, is actually kind of like a trial scene. There's a lot of... Uh, judicial language and imagery in here. And we're going to see Job sort of take the stand one more time. Take the stand, and as he does, he's going to display some real wisdom and some real humility. So we're going to work through chapter 31 a little backwards today and kind of start near the end in order to set the stage for what comes before it. So towards the end, in verse 35, Job says this to kind of conclude a lot of what he's been saying. He says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me and let my accuser put his indictment in writing. He's essentially saying, the defense rests now, Your Honor. I have no further arguments at this time. And then further down, the very end of chapter 31 says, The words of Job are ended. So Job, at this point, is, is done talking for now. And as he does that, as he lets his words end, I think he displays some real wisdom at this point in the story. I was thinking this week of a, a great ministry colleague my wife Liz and I have in InterVarsity. Her name is Dr. Alice Brown Collins, or Dr. ABC for short. And she is, uh, she's been around a while. She's very wise. She's kind of a, a diminutive woman but a spiritual giant. like Her words really carry a lot of weight. And there's a, a legendary story of a meeting years ago where uh, InterVarsity's ministry in New England was facing some real challenges, some real obstacles. People were feeling a little stuck. And so some of the best and brightest minds from our campus ministry got together. I mean, real smart people from like Harvard and Yale and you know, trying to figure out what do we do? What do we make of the situation? And how do we move forward? And had a meeting that was going on. They were getting kind of stuck. And Dr. ABC shows up at this meeting, kind of just observes for a while, and then it's her turn to speak. She says, well, I see a whole lot of talking going on in here, but not much praying. And everybody kind of instantly knew, oh, she was right. We're just, we're just talking and talking away, but no amount of, of insight or expertise or experience is really getting us anywhere at this point. They were stuck. And they realized more and more words from themselves, amongst themselves, was not really going to get it done. What they needed was a word from the Lord. I just love that phrase Dr. ABC used, a whole lot of talking. And that really can summarize a lot of the book of Job so far. There's just been a whole lot of talking going on. Job's friends, one at a time, taking turns, just going after him, and Job's responding. They're talking and talking. And they've really gotten just about nowhere. 
in terms of understanding what's really going on and what's behind Job's incredible pain and suffering. All this talking, not a whole lot of understanding. And last week was a profound passage, a great message, where we saw the author of Job take kind of a time out, a pause on all this talking and, and give an ode to wisdom and to our need for wisdom. As if to say, look, no matter how smart you are or eloquent you are or experienced you are, all your talking is only going to get you so far, but there are some things we just don't know and can't know. There are some things we just don't understand and can't understand. And it is wisdom on our part to recognize this and to recognize that it is God who knows far beyond what we know and understands far beyond what we understand and has wisdom that we don't have. And we need to be wise in, in acknowledging that and stop trying to be God ourselves, but instead turn to God Acknowledging him as God and the one with all knowledge and all understanding and all wisdom. And we need to hear what he has to say. And Job displays this kind of wisdom in chapter 31 when he just stops talking for a while. Just stops talking. He realizes it's time for him to put his words aside and to put his case in the hands of the judge. And in doing so, he acknowledges the only one really fit and qualified to offer a right judgment in this case is God. Not him, not his friends, but God alone. And so Job, from this point on, is not going to say anything else until he hears what God has to say. A lot of wisdom in that. He's not going to say anything more until he hears what God has to say. And we will hear what God has to say, but... It'll take a little bit longer because next week we'll see one more of Job's friends just can't help himself, has to talk for five more chapters. <laughs> and then God speaks, but Job's done for now. He realizes uh, it's time to let his words come to an end. There's a lot of wisdom there, wisdom that I think is sorely needed in our day and age and in the church. So we live in kind of a Interesting time where really anybody with an opinion now can be heard pretty broadly. I mean, people have always had a lot of opinions, but generally our circles of who heard them was pretty small, but they're, they're a lot less limited now. And if you shout loud enough these days, or if you're savvy enough with technology, you can be heard by a lot of people. And you don't even have to have any sort of relationship with them at all in order for them to know what you have to say about something. So there's a whole lot of talking going on out there. And as I listen to it, I wonder sometimes how much people in the church have really allowed ourselves to fully come under the leadership of Jesus in this arena and what that might look like. I think it would look like, to some extent, the sort of wisdom that we see in Job. Not saying that we, shouldn't all, we should always be quiet, not saying we don't have important things to say. I think we do have important things to say that need to be said. But I am saying, the more we're going to talk, the more we had also better learn to be quiet. Because if all we're doing is talking without also being quiet, all we're adding is our own words, which just add more noise to a world that's already way too noisy. But it takes wisdom, like we see in Job, to at times have a, a habit, a practice of stopping talking, letting our words come to an end, and to acknowledge that sometimes, you know, the only thing worth saying is what God has to say. 
And the only one who is really fit and qualified to offer true judgment in a situation is God himself. Long to see more of that kind of wisdom where we make space for what God has to say, which requires us to let our own words come to an end on a regular basis. Job does just that in chapter 31. His words come to an end so that we can hear God. But before he lets his words come to an end, the rest of chapter 31, we see Job give one final defense of his case, one final time on the witness stand. Because up until this point, Job's friends have been questioning him. They've, they've had so much to say. But the common theme in all of it is, come on, Job, what did you do? You're suffering so badly, you must have done something. You must be being punished for something. So what is it? And they're trying to get some kind of confession out of him. But Job does not back down. Job does not compromise the truth. He, he's saying, look, there, there is no thing I'm being punished for here. The punishment does not fit the crime in this case. In Job's defense, he's not saying he's perfect, right? he's never sinned, but he is saying there's no cause and effect here between something I've done and the pain and suffering I'm going through. So he tries to give it one last defense, and he has to serve as his own advocate in the courtroom here because his friends have turned into his accusers. So Job advocates for himself, and and he does so in a very ancient Near Eastern sort of way. Because in that time, it was common when someone was accused of a crime and, and wanted to protest their innocence of that crime, that they would call down curses upon themselves if they did it. So it would be as if, uh, yeah, as if Hervé said, I stole his wallet. And, and I know I didn't do it, but if I were Job, I wouldn't just say, I didn't do it. I would say, well, if I stole your wallet, then let everything I own and all of my house be robbed and plundered by a gang of thieves. I'm going to call down a curse upon myself if I did it. And Job does that all throughout chapter 31. There's a particularly vivid example in verses 9 and 10. He says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her. Whew. I mean, that is some strong language. And it is a particularly forceful way of Job saying, I have not been unfaithful to my wife. And if you think that's the reason I'm suffering the way that I am, you're dead wrong. It's a forceful way of saying it. And he uses this kind of pattern all throughout chapter 31. If I've done this, and it's striking. There are over 20 different statements that start with if in this chapter. If I did this, if I behaved in this way, if this is true, or if this is the case, over 20 different things, it's really striking just how thorough Job's cross-examination is. And Job, in addition to being his own advocate, he's sort of the one cross-examining himself here. Over 20 different if-I statements. It's super thorough. He covers everything. One commentator called chapter 31, Job's Sermon on the Mount, a, a reference to this robust teaching of Jesus that we looked at as a church a couple of years ago. Jesus covers a whole wide range 
of subjects under, under God's law and, and really presses down, not just to external behaviors, but also to hidden attitudes and intentions and, and thoughts of the heart. And Job does this. He does a really full and clean sweep of his life, a really thorough cross-examination. Job does not make distinctions, and he's not selective about what he allows to, to be revealed, which is amazing because all of us like to be selective in the sort of sins that we talk about. And this happens in the church. It happens among people of God, but it happens really all human beings, no matter what they call it, sin or what. There are some evils, some wrongs that really bother us, usually the things we see in other people. And then there are other things that we kind of would rather not think about or we think are fine or, you know, brush under the rug. Job doesn't do any of that. And God doesn't make those kind of selective distinctions either. But Job allows it all to be covered. A thorough cross-examination. I got to say, I've really been challenged being in this passage all week by how thorough Job is. And I have had to ask myself, do I have the honesty and do I have the humility to allow my own life to be examined as thoroughly as Job does? And do we? How thoroughly are we willing to take a look honestly and transparently at our lives before God and to allow God to address all of it? Not just on the behavior level, but also the internal attitudes of the heart. It's very, very thorough. He reminds me almost of, of my primary care doctor. So Liz and I have this physician we've been seeing for the last five years or so. I, I really like him, but the first time I went in for a physical, I have to say I was a little caught off guard by just how thorough this exam was. My doctor is quite thorough. And it's all the basic stuff that you would expect, the blood pressure and the reflexes and family history and stuff like that. But then I mean, he just... You know, question after question. He was really giving me the third degree, and he wouldn't even settle for some of my answers. So he, he would ask, um, well, do you floss regularly? I said, well, I, I, you know, I try, like, when I, when I think of it. Like, so you don't. <laughs> uh, well, I guess not, no, not regularly then. He was like, well, why not? I don't know. I, I, just, I just don't. I don't have a good answer for you. And, and he just kind of kept... You know, question after question, I, I already, you know, had to undress to put that gown on. And then he was just like undressing me with his questions. He's talking about home life and relationships and intimacy. He's talking about my work life and my stress and how do I cope with it and how do I handle it and what keeps me up at night and why don't I sleep better. And, and the kicker was, he, he asked, were you happy as a child? Was your home growing up a happy place? I said... Sure, but inwardly I'm thinking, bro, I don't know you. And I thought I was just coming in for a physical, not a psychological. But yeah, I've really come to appreciate my, my doctor. He has a very holistic understanding of health and all sorts of things that could affect it. And he has my whole health in mind. He's looking for anything and everything that might, might affect my health. And so I've come to really welcome his thorough examination of my life. It's made me a healthier person, honestly. And I welcome it because I know that he has my health in mind, my overall well-being in mind. And, but, but I've got to ask myself, do I believe this when it comes to the kind of self-examination that we see in Job? 
when it comes to examining my life honestly and thoroughly before God, do I, do I have the humility, do I, do I welcome that, do I receive that, and do I believe, ultimately, that God has my health and well-being in mind? Because he certainly does. He certainly does. And this may be a little more than you bargained for showing up here on a Sunday morning, but as we go on, we're going to spend some time in honest and thorough self-examination. It's fitting to do it now because we're actually in a period in the, in the church calendar called Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter. I don't know if you have experience with Lent from growing up. I, I kind of do. Lent for me as a kid was a, a time when you uh, didn't eat meat on Fridays, and if I was feeling especially religious, I might give up chocolate or something. But all that is just kind of like the, the, the remains of a rich tradition in church history of Christians in the period leading up to Easter really fasting, really devoting themselves to prayer and to an honest and thorough self-examination of their lives and allowing their lives to really be laid bare and laid open before God, like Job does. I mean, Job lays open everything from his bedroom to his bank account in transparency before the Lord. And that's really what Lent is intended to do, not to make us feel bad, In fact, quite the opposite. It's to cultivate a a heart and a posture in us that makes us really ready to fully receive and appreciate the grace and the good news that comes with Easter and and the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf for sin and the new life that he promises and offers us. So we'll go there a little bit today. And and self-examination is not just a Lent thing. I was reading about early Methodist Wesleyan small groups under the leadership of John Wesley. It was a powerful revival and movement of God in the 18th century, a great awakening. And the early Methodists met in small groups, and they would ask themselves a real thorough gamut of examination questions. Here are some samples. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? Do I pass on to others what has been said to me in confidence? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? Do I pray about the money that I spend? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, or distrustful? Do I give the Bible time to speak to me every day? Did I disobey God in anything or insist on doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? This is like a third of the questions. And just so you know, if you're considering checking out one of our life groups here at The Journey, we won't do that. That's not really how we roll. But it's worth noting, those early Wesleyan Methodists did that in their small groups. And those groups grew like wildfire. People couldn't wait to join them. And they multiplied and spread. It was a huge movement. I think, one, because people had a space to finally get real about their lives. And in doing so, they they found grace in that setting. They found the grace and healing power, transformative power of Jesus. So that's what it's for. That's what self-examination is for. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time here doing a little self-examination exercise. And you may feel at first like I felt at my doctor, like, why are you getting all up in my business right now? But hear my heart in this and know that The Lord only wants to examine our lives for our healing, for our restoration, and for our wholeness. And that's what I want, too. In our 
Recovery Bible study on Thursday, we saw Jesus say, and it's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. And I've come to heal and to call sinners, not those who think they have it all together. So now at this point, it's not going to be like me talking and you listening, but I'd invite you to take a sort of prayerful posture if you want to write things down or take notes as they, as they come to mind or if you want to um, bow, your, bow your head. But we'll also have an, an outline here on the, on the screen. So for this self-examine exercise, I'm just going to lead us through it and we're going to use Job chapter 31 as an outline. And we'll just mention all the things that Job mentions in his if statements. Just ask ourselves, where has this been true in our lives? And I'm right here with you. This is, this is also not a time to look around the room and say, well, I hope he heard that. <laughs> or, I wonder if she's feeling convicted right now. I bet she is. Self-examination. Your life before, between you and the Lord, okay? So let's walk through Job 31. Verse 5, he says, If I have walked with falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit. Here Job is naming dishonesty. Where have we been less than fully honest with him, with ourselves, and with others, whether outright lies that we've told or lived, telling half-truths or withholding honest truth, or perhaps working to give the impression that something is true of us that actually isn't. Where have we been dishonest? Verse 9, back to verse 9, he says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door. Job talks about sexual sin in the way that Jesus does, getting beyond behavior to also just the thoughts of our heart. Where have we either acted out in a sexual way outside of a God-ordained covenant of marriage or allowed ourselves to be enticed given in to lust or fantasy or pornography, utilizing other human lives for our own gratification. In verse 13, Job says, If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, we'll call this one taking advantage of others. Where have we taken advantage of or mistreated, misused other people, whether our employees, those who work for us, those who trust us or look to us for something? Or perhaps people that we've never even met before. You know, I've had to ask myself, how is it that my own appetites for lots of stuff and to have it as cheap as possible has exploited other people? Whether jobs that get lost here or people, poor people, children around the world who whose labor is taken advantage of, that I can have lots of stuff for cheap. How do I perpetuate the taking advantage of others? Verse 16 through 19, Job says, If I have denied the desires of the poor, let the eyes of the widow grow weary. If I have kept bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing... 
Where have we lacked generosity towards the poor and the needy? Been in a position to share, to bless, but been hard-hearted or tight-fisted in our spirit rather than generous. Verse 21, Job says, If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court. Here he's acknowledging that he has real privilege and power in this world and is examining how he's used it. I have to acknowledge as an American-born white male with a college education and the opportunities and resources I've been afforded in this world that comes with a tremendous amount of privilege and power. And many of us have varying degrees of privilege and power here, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but we need to examine ask ourselves, how have we leveraged it? Have we leveraged it only to further our own advantage at the expense of others? to keep disparities in play, or have we leveraged our privilege and our power for the betterment of others? Verse 24 and 25, Job says, if I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I've rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained. And Jesus talks about money probably more than just about any other subject, knowing what a powerful thing it is in the lives of, of human beings, in the human heart, to put our trust in it instead of him. Where have we put our trust in wealth, in money, in material things? Where have we hoarded and been greedy and not been faithful stewards of the resources God has given us? Verses 26 and 27, Job says, If I have regarded the sun and its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage. What he's talking about here is idolatry. Probably the most talked about sin in all of scripture. The worship of things other than the one true God. And here people worshiped the sun and the moon as, as gods. In Job's day, and that's a lot of what idolatry is really, is taking a good thing, a good gift of God, but making it an ultimate thing. Worshiping it, looking to it for more than it should give, looking to it to do for us what God alone was intended to do. So what are some of the idols that we've given our hearts over to? Were there other gods or spiritual beings that we've worshipped besides the true God, whether our favorite sports team or entertainer, whether our technology, our reputation, a relationship, the esteem of others, maybe food and drink. Good things, good gifts that we've made into ultimate things and worshipped. Verse 29 and 30, Job says, If I have rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, Verse 30 talks about invoking a curse against their life. Where have we cursed our enemies? Where have we held on to bitterness, grudges, unforgiveness, and wished evil, wished ill upon people rather than extending grace and mercy? Verse 31 and 32, Job describes the welcoming of strangers who need a place to stay 
He's talking about hospitality. Where have we lacked hospitality? Where have we refused to extend the gracious welcome of God to those who need it? As a church, where have we lacked hospitality and welcoming those who need the gracious welcome and invitation and hospitality of God who are wandering and lost? Verse 33 and 34, Job says, If I have concealed my sin as people do by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside. We'll call this the fear of man. Where have we been driven by our, our care and concern about what other people will think rather than by what will please God? Given in to people pleasing, not done the thing that we know we ought to do just out of caring what others would say, fearing the crowd. Verse 38 and 39 says, If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants. It's talking about care for the land. Care for creation. Where have we failed to be the kind of good stewards of creation, of the land that God has called us to be and instead been exploiting it selfishly and short-sightedly, using it just for our own selfish gain. Where have we exploited others in the process, broken the spirit of its tenants? How do we perpetuate systems whereby all of a sudden, like healthy food that's grown normally in the way God intended it to, to grow is a luxury item for people with means, while many in our city live in food deserts and don't have proper nutrition? Then we'll circle back finally to verse 7, where Job says, If my steps have turned from the path. This is a real wide open one, basically to say, anything else? If we, if we fail to cover any, any way in which we just simply strayed from the, the path that God would have us walk in. I want to commend you for the courage to go here with me. It's, when I was examining my own life this week and looking at this passage, I thought, oh, well, God, is this really what you, what you want us to do? But I believe it is an invitation to our health, to our wholeness, and to our restoration. The point is not just to feel bad. Now, I'll, if you're right now feeling superior to anyone else, then you've definitely missed the point. But also, if, you're, if you leave here just feeling lousy, then, then we'll definitely miss the point as well. Because God never examines our lives, never wants to lay them bare before him without his loving care and with his desire for our wholeness and our restoration. Here's why we need to be honest in the self-examination of our lives. We're going to look really quickly at a passage from 1 John. He writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. 
So we need to come clean just simply to be truthful and to be honest. If we claim to be without sin, we are lying and dishonest. We need to just be honestly transparent, but also so that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to purify us from all unrighteousness. This is his intention. John goes on to say, my dear children, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We're not left without an advocate in all this. Poor Job in the court scene in chapter 31 is advocating for himself as his friends turn into accusers. But those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are never, ever without an advocate. The God of angel armies is always by our side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of ours, gets down off the judgment seat to stand by our side when the accuser comes to condemn and to shame and to judge and to hold our record of wrongs over our heads. And he says, "Uh uh-uh, she's with me. He's with me. And the debt is paid in full by me. And they are with me, the righteous one. The verdict is not guilty. The God of angel armies is by our side. We need to receive that and believe that. We, Christians should be bold and fearless about examining our lives and confessing our sins because we never do it without an advocate. But if you've yet to receive his atoning sacrifice on your behalf, you are left to fend for yourself and to be your own advocate. And I urge you to not do that. To allow this Jesus, this atoning sacrifice to be your advocate, to say yes, to put your faith in his atoning death for our sin, that we have nothing left to pay. So let's come before him and worship him together. Lord, thank you so much for the safety with which we can examine our lives before you. Thank you, Lord, that you desire authenticity, transparency, and honesty in the innermost parts of us, that you're not content to leave us in places of unhealth. Thank you, Lord, for this example of a thorough, thorough cross-examination. Lord, would you give us the courage and the transparency to continually examine our lives? Would you give us the wisdom to hear what you have to say and to be the righteous and rightful judge over all things and over our lives. And thank you, God, for being our advocate. Thank you for standing by our side, never leaving or forsaking, and always bringing us deeper into wholeness and to redemption and into eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.